If you ever thought that your neighbor was just the person who lived next door to you, wait until you see the spiritual significance of what neighborhood or neighboring relationships actually means, both to us as people and in the context of Torah and mitzvahs. So we'll start this journey with a halacha that is related to neighbors. That says that you should do that which is upright and good in Hashem's eyes. From that, we learn as Din Bar Metzra, the very unique halacha of the Bar Metzra, how you treat a neighbor when it comes to selling a field. And this is the halacha. Let's say that a person sells a field to another individual. It is within the rights of the person neighboring that field. So I've got a field and I sell it to you. In the meantime, there's somebody who is the neighbor to my field that I've just sold to you. They are allowed to come along. That person who's uh, adjoining the field has the rights to get rid of the purchaser and say, no, I'm sorry, I am the neighbor, and I really I should have gotten this field because it would allow me to expand my work and my farming in this environment. So here you go, please leave, I'll buy you out or whatever it is, and he can buy the field for himself. And the reason is, because the logic says it is, well, it is, it's a decent thing to do to allow a person to have fields that adjoin each other because it makes it much easier for the person to be able to farm and to be able to move their equipment, etc., Okay, so that's the halacha of Bar Metra. It's a fairly well-known halacha. Now, Din Bar Metra Nema B'Gemora. This halacha is recorded in the Gemora, Bechem B'Pesach HaRambam B'Chulei. And it is also likewise recorded in the Rambam, B'Mokim Shabay HaLekech Kono Kvaris HaSodah. This halacha kicks in once the customer, the purchaser, has already bought the field. Asher Mitzad V'Osisa Yoshev HaToiv. That because we're supposed to do what is right and good, Masalkin O'Yisohimeno, we actually remove the person who paid full price for the field, and give it now, to, or give the option at least to the neighbor to buy the field instead. Which illustrates to us, and we move on, that who has the onus of doing the right thing? The purchaser. The purchaser should now relinquish his rights to this field in favor of the neighbor. Because really, for the purchaser, what's the difference if he buys this field or the field down the road? It doesn't really make a difference to him. Whereas to the neighbor, it does make a difference because this is a matter of expanding his existing field with a tremendous amount of convenience. And therefore, it's appropriate that who should buy the field the person who is closest geographically to it. Okay, so it sounds like who has the responsibility to do the right thing? The purchaser. We actually see another piece of evidence to this when the Gemara tells us that if a person sold a field to a non-Jewish person, then the law of Bar Metzra does not apply because nobody would suggest that a non-Jewish person has the obligation of doing the right thing. Heiner, that proves to us that obviously tells us that who has the responsibility of doing the correct thing and therefore allowing the neighbor to have another field close by, it is the purchaser. And therefore, if the purchaser is non-Jewish, it's a moot point because there's obviously no mitzvah for a non-Jewish purchaser. Okay, so that's how it is so far. We see that it is the person who buys a field who has to consider the neighbor of the field who should have already gotten it first. Now, there are two ways in which we can look at this. We could view this halacha from two perspectives. 
Aleph. One perspective is, It's purely a matter of decency. That's the whole halacha. In other words, There's no legal weakening of the rights of the purchaser to this field. It's 100% his field. He paid for it. He owns it. It's only the correct thing. But the rabbis expect this person to be decent, to be really menschlich. And therefore, they'll apply pressure to him and responsibility to him to now do the right thing and sell this field to the neighbor. And you can expand that outwards to other halachas that are on similar lines of Bar Metzra. So that's one possibility. Legally, it's his field, but appropriately, he should give it to the neighbor. But there's another perspective. Base. Maybe it's possible that this need to do that, which is right and good in Hashem's eyes, maybe that already allows the neighbor to have some legal claim on this field even before the transaction went down. And therefore, when we're now telling the current owner who bought the field that he should rather sell it off to the neighbor, that's it's not just because we expect him to be a good person, but actually because the neighbor has some legal attachment to that field. To borrow a term from Rabbi Yosef Chaviva, the Nemuka Yosef, the 14th century commentator on the Gemara, he says, actually, the neighbor already has some financial legal claim to the field. Okay, so the two ways to look at it. The neighbor has no legal claim and it's purely a matter of the purchaser now doing the right thing and selling the field to somebody for his convenience. Or the possibility that there's already some connection that the neighbor has to this field, we have to respect his legal rights. Now, this will have practical applications. He has a difference between the two approaches. If we take the first approach, which is that this is purely a matter of the customer, the purchaser, behaving appropriately, then we're addressing and instructing that purchaser, how he should behave, that he has to do the right and good thing, and to give that field or sell that field to the neighbor. And if he doesn't want to, then best in so we can apply legal pressure on him. But it's all about his decision. Whereas if we take the second approach, that this is a legally binding issue that has to be considered when selling property, we still remain with the onus on the customer, on the purchaser, to now do the right thing and relinquish that field in favor of the neighbor. But practically, it's not just that we instruct the purchaser to sell the field to the partner, to the, to the neighbor. It's actually an instruction to the basin. It's because of this principle of doing what's right, the Chachamim empower the neighbor to have some ownership, some rights to the field, which means we immediately weaken the claim of the purchaser, which is why he has to leave, because he doesn't really have a full claim to this field. Okay, two possibilities. 
Now that we have these two perspectives, that it's either a matter of saying, you, the purchaser, please do the right thing, or you, the purchaser, actually didn't have a real claim to this field because the neighbor had a primary claim. So that will explain two different opinions between classic Rishonim. Most acutely expressed in the views of Rashi and the Rama. So, but time din bar metro, when it comes to explaining why we have this principle that you always favor the neighbor and give him first rights of refusal on a field, because mitzad v'asisa yoshev the Pasuk says you've got to do what is correct, cost of Rashi. So Rashi explains it as follows. You, the purchaser, you're not really going to lose out much on this deal. Because you could always find another field somewhere else. So therefore, let's not favor you and thereby inconvenience the neighbor so that he should have to find another field which is distant from his current field. Okay, so Rashi's emphasis is, you're not going to lose anything on this deal. Let's help the guy out so his life could be easier. Whereas the Rambam words it differently. He says, the person who is the neighbor has the rights to pay out the purchaser and get that field from him. Why is it? Because the Torah tells us you have to do what is correct. To which the sages explain, because there's one kind of sale that is actually better, because it's better for this neighbor, it's in his interest to have this field rather than a distant field. Now, what's the difference in the language? Rashi only words all of the goodness and menschlichkeit over here towards the purchaser. You're not going to lose out. You shouldn't create inconvenience for the neighbor. And Rashi will echo this later on. Commenting on when the Gemara says that none of this would apply to a non-Jewish purchaser because he's not bound by the laws of being good and upright in Menschlech. Says Rashi, Rashi says clearly, the application of the law of doing the right thing is only directed towards the person, the purchaser. We tell that person, withdraw your rights and give it to the neighbor instead. Rashi is telling us, it is how we address the lokeach, the purchaser, the first view of how bar metzra works. Whereas according to the Rambam, Rambam says it's not only about that. It's not only about the responsibility of the purchaser. And it's not only about his consideration for the neighbor. Rambam expands it further out and says there's a principle over here. The fact that Chachamim say that this is the correct way to behave. With a focus not so much on the purchaser, actually with a focus on the neighbor. The neighbor has rights. The sages say it's better for him, the neighbor, to purchase this land. Which tells us two things. Firstly, it tells us that this is fundamentally a good way to behave, not just a good choice for you, the purchaser. 
And secondly, it's a result of the fact that the Chachamim have already allocated rights to that neighbor. That's why we're talking about the neighbor. So Rashi says we're talking about the purchaser because he should do the right thing. The Rambam says we're talking about the neighbor because he has rights and we have to respect those rights. He has some ownership or rights to this land already. With that in mind, we can understand how the Rambam addresses the question of why by Metzvah does not apply if the purchaser is not Jewish. Look what the Rambam says. If somebody does actually sell to a non-Jewish person, we don't just shrug our shoulders and say, okay, he doesn't have the responsibility to do the Yoshev uh, Rather, the Rambam says, we put that person into Cherem. And we ensure that the seller takes on any liability of what might happen for having sold this property to a non-Jewish person. And we keep the pressure on until such time as the non-Jewish purchaser succumbs to our halachas and is willing to honor the laws of Bar Metzra. The Rambam completely ignores what the Gemara says, that the non-Jewish person is not bound by a mitzvah because he's not Jewish and therefore he doesn't have to do Vasisa Yoshevatoiv. And based by Yisof Alashena Gemara, the Rambam actually adds words the Gemara did not actually say, that there's dafka an expectation that the non-Jewish person will now follow through our laws of Bar Metzra. Why is that? Because the Rambam's view is this is not simply about how the purchaser should behave. It is a broader law of the society respecting the needs of the neighbor and the fact that he already has some kind of rights to the field. So those are two, per, two possible views. Is there actually a connection between the two neighbors or is it simply about respecting a person and doing the right thing in his favor? Now this is significant because we've explained many times that there are many issues and even in halacha that even though at first glance you'll think they're completely independent topics that have nothing to do with each other because we know the Torah is fundamentally one when you delve deeply enough into the subject matter you will find a common thread or they are all built on a single foundation as we find in many especially the Ragachava. So that's what we're going to do now. We've spoken about Bar Metzra. We're going to apply it to other areas of Halacha where there is a similar kind of connection between two what appear to be disparate things that actually have a connection. And the question is how much connection? And the interesting thing is that they'll apply to the three main spheres of existence. So, based on what we've explained so far, where we've explained that the difference between Rashi and Rambam are the two perspectives on how Bar Metzra works, they actually speak to a bigger issue. And we'll see that bigger issue express itself in different areas in different ways. But it boils down to this. The fact that two people or two entities, neighbor each other, does that create a meaningful personal influence from the one to the other, a meaningful connection between them, which causes shinui bi'etzim where the one neighbor changes the status of the other. 
Like, for example, the fact that somebody lives next door to my field, does that change them now to be like a partial owner of the field? Or is it just a tenuous, superficial link between you happen to be geographical neighbors, and therefore it would be nice if, we would, if we'd be good to you and allow you to have this field? Which would basically uh, influence how a person is supposed to respond to a scenario, not the fact that that neighbor has a right or connection to this particular scenario. Now this will have practical applications for but we're going to focus on three. We're going to look at three general areas which follow the theme as in Sefer Yetzirah, which is the three primary realities of existence, which are Oilam, space, Shana, time, and Nefesh within the human experience. So we've already discussed space. We've spoken about the difference, or, uh, the different opinions about how neighbors work physically, and that plays out in the two views of how Barmetra works. Is there a fundamental change to the neighbor that he now owns a piece of the land, or is it just that they have a tenuous relationship because geographically they neighbor each other? So it would be nice for you, the purchaser, to please honor the guy and the fact that he has proximity to the field. Now, a similar thing happens in time. Bishona, Binyal Azman. Where do we see this? The fact that you're supposed to add some time from the weekday to become incorporated in Yom Kippur, which everybody agrees is, is based on a pasuk in the Torah, because the Torah speaks about the fast starting on the ninth of Tishrei towards evening. But a similar dis- discussion will apply to adding time before and after Shabbos and Yom Tov, which is a matter of the dispute, whether it is rabbinic or Torah-based. So now, there's also some element of neighbor that happens over here. Because the time immediately before or immediately after Shabbos, is the neighbor of Shabbos. So we could explain it from two perspectives that are completely aligned with the two perspectives about what is the nature of the neighbor to my field. Is he just a person I should treat well? Or is a person who already, by virtue of him living in proximity, has a finger in the pie of my field? So similar discussion about Shabbos and Yom Tov. Out of one possibility is, Maybe the time that is immediately before and after Shabbos and Yom Tov is fundamentally different to the time of the rest of the week because it now has a deep connection to Shabbos. Meaning, because it is next to Shabbos, it changes, and it has now those 10, 15, 18 minutes before Shabbos, half an hour after Shabbos, whatever it is, they now have some of the holiness of Shabbos, one possibility, or or nothing really changes about the time. But because it is so close to Shabbos, we as people should already be in Shabbos mode prior to Shabbos and we should linger in Shabbos mode after Shabbos. The time is not fundamentally unique. We should take a different approach. Now, this will play out in practical halacha. There's a very interesting debate if you could fulfill the mitzvah of making Kiddush, if it's not technically Shabbos yet, but we've added time to Shabbos in advance. 
So you say that there should be manati sefas efshel kai mitzvahs kiddush vachidah shabbos vechiyotzebozehu. What's the foundation of the group of authorities who argue that yes, you can make kiddush and you can already have your shabbos meal, etc. Because they will tell you that the time itself has already become holy time. Even though on the calendar it's not technically Shabbos, the fact that it's in proximity to Shabbos, the Shabbos influence is so meaningful and, and, and altering that it actually becomes holy time, you can make Kiddush. Now there's one exception. When it comes to Pesach, everybody, including these opinions, would agree that you can't have the four cups and the mitzvah of matzah when it's still early, even if you want to bring Yom Tov in early. For a different reason. Because those are things that have to happen when it is actually physically night time. So there might be holiness about because of the proximity to Yontav, but the fact is it's not night time, and these are mitzvahs that have to be done at night. Now, But then there's another school of thought that says, no, if I'm going to add time to Shabbos, all I'm doing is adding time that I am personally restricted from those behaviors that are not permitted on Shabbos. From that perspective, they'll say that the link between the time before and after Shabbos and Shabbos itself is a tenuous superficial link. It's not a strong enough link to turn those minutes into Shabbos. So the only thing I could choose to do during that time frame is limit myself, place restrictions on myself. I am allowed to restrict myself whenever I choose. But I don't have the right or the option to do things that are associated with the holiness of Shabbos because the holiness is not available until the time that the Torah had mandated. So there you see exactly the same thing. Does the situation change, or does, does, is it just a matter of my responsibility that is affected? And we'll see a similar thing, Benefesh, in the human experience. At the end of Masechus Sukkot, a very disturbing story that the, 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 the Gemara relates. The mission tells the Gemara, it goes into detail. It tells us that those people are coming on to serve their weekly duty as Koyhanim twice a year. They would get their portions of the various things the Kohanim shared in in the north part of the Kohanim's courtyard. The northern part of the courtyard is the primary place where all of the activities of sacrifices are meant to happen. So when they get their share of the meat of the sacrifices, that's where it happens. Whereas those people who are about to leave from their week of duty, but Bedorim, they eat in the south. And that's because it, it indicates that they're kind of on their way out. Says the Mishnah, Mishmeres Bilga, there was a particular group of Koyhanim that had their weekly, um, their, their, their one week of service, and they were called the Bilga family, or the Bilga um, uh, guarding, or whatever you want to call it, group. So, they would only ever get their portions of the Korbanos in the southern area. So, that's like a little bit of a, uh, like a, a downgrade for them. 
Vetabato kuvua, we'll learn what that means. They had a ring that was locked. We'll see what that means. Vechaloina stuma, and they had a window that was blocked up, and we'll see what that means. It's very clear that this group, the Bilga group, was censured. And the question is why. The Gemara says two possibilities. One possibility, the first is a very disturbing story about this woman, Miriam, who came from the Bilga family and rebelled against Judaism, became a heretic, married out of the faith to some big uh, Greek uh, prominent fellow. And she famously spoke negatively about them is Be'ach. The Gemara tells the story in great detail. And of course, there's a very powerful sicha from the Rebbe about Miriam Bas Bilga, which is a must learn. The second possibility is They were a bit uh, behind. You know, they, they, they dragged their feet. They didn't really, the Kohanim are supposed to be very energetic and very precise and very punctual. And Bilga, they kind of were a little bit uh, laid back. And so they were, they were d- discriminated against. Fact the Gemara asks, We get it. If you're going to go with the second view, which is that they were all quite tardy in their in their arrival or their service, and they, they just really didn't work properly, then we understand why everybody who was part of the group was all penalized. But if you're going to say that the whole story is because of one woman who turned her back on her Judaism, is it really fair to punish Bilga because of his daughter? And because even if you believe that the parents should be punished, why penalize the entire group of everybody who was on duty? Says the Gemara, the Gemara says, Sorry, I uh, skipped a line over here. So, punish him. The reason you punish the parents for the behavior of the child is because people know that the way a child speaks is what they learned at home. So, if Miriam Basbilga had these horrible things to say about the Mizbech, and by extension towards Hashem, it came from somewhere, punish the family. So, ask the Gemara Mishum Avoba, because of the family, you're going to punish the entire unit. Woe to a wicked person, woe to their neighbor. But if it's good for a, a righteous person, it'll be good for their neighbor. Say to the tzaddik that it will be good for him because he eats the product of his hands. And the fact that the Gemara spent so much time analyzing the first explanation, which is that that it's because of Miriam Bas Bilga that the Bilga unit was penalized, that's obviously the main reason why, in fact, they were discriminated against. And so we've got to examine that. Right at the end of the conversation, Rashi comments, from this story we say, <coughs> Woe to a wicked person, woe to his neighbor, from which you can naturally extrapolate, because the story is not about a tzaddik, so you have to extrapolate. If look what happened to Miriam Basbilga, her family, and how it affected everybody around them, you could work out the same thing applies in the positive. And then he says, because we know as an axiom in Judaism that the positive that Hashem shares with the world is always far greater than, God forbid, the negative. So if a person could affect their neighbor negatively, they certainly could affect them positively. Now that's interesting. 
The fact that Rashi had to tell us that principle, that the positive always overwhelms the negative. And through that, he illustrates to us that if it's good for the tzaddik, it will be good for his neighbor. The fact that Rashi said we have to work it out by extrapolation, by deduction, that indicates that Rashi did not have in his version of the Gemara the Pasuk, which we've just read, Imru Letzadik, etc. In fact, there are quite a number of editions of the Gemara that don't have that Pasuk. We have to understand why that would be. And practically, what's the difference if I understand the positive influence of a good person from a Pasuk or from logical deduction? What's the difference? In order to understand that, let's go back to the two elements of how they were penalized, which we haven't yet explained, the locked ring and the closed window, where the Rashi and the Rambam, now that's relevant to us because we've already seen that Rashi and the Rambam are the key perspectives on the two ways of looking at neighbors, and they have different ways of explaining what that means. Rashi Pirush. Rashi says, Rashi says, what ring are we talking about? The ring, if you look in the Gemara in Tamid, it tells us that on the floor in the slaughter area of the courtyard of the Kohanim, there were rings that they used to be able to hold an animal in order to shecht it. They were built into the stone on the floor. And it was a ring that was open on one end. So you would kind of move it open, put the animal lying down with its neck where the ring is, and then you would close that ring to lock the animal in place and would make it easy to shech the animal without any undue force or suffering. So it says, They locked the bilga ring so they couldn't shech in their own special place and they would have to share the ring with some other group of koihane. Then the blocked up window, Rashi explains, that there was an area in the Beis Hamidosh called Beis Hamidosh where they would keep the chalofim, that means the shechting knives. And it was within the wall of the compartments that were around the Beis Hamidosh. That's where they would put their, their knives for safekeeping until it was time to shecht again. Says Rashi, the particular compartment, the locker, that was reserved for Bilga, that was blocked up. So Rashi's take on this is that two elements of the Beis Amikdash that were associated with the process of shechting animals, that's what was locked away from, from Bilga and they could not access. The Rambam takes, takes a completely different perspective. In his commentary on the Mishnah, the Rambam explains, The ring and the window are as follows. Every group, every unit that had duty in the Beis HaMikdash had its specific place, which was like a column with a ring at the top, and they used to use it to hang animals, to be able to skin them easily before they would put the meat either onto the Mizbech or distribute to the Kehanim. And they were all built into walls or pillars. So when you came on duty, <coughs> when it was your 
uh, turn to come on duty, you'd hang your ring into the, you'd kind of fix it into the wall, and that would be the sign that you're now on duty. Likewise, there were 24 different lockers. And that's where the people would put their clothing that they would wear during service in the base. I make just the special clothing of the Koyanim. Each group who would be on duty would have their window, and that's what was closed up for Bilga. So according to the Rambam, it's got nothing to do with shkita. The parts that were taken away from them are the part about skinning the animals. And the windows for the lockers that were used to store their clothing. Now what's the difference if this is all about shechting or it's about other areas of service? The difference is this. The Pirish Rashi, this is fascinating. Rashi's perspective is, The impact of the the penalties against Bilga only affected areas of observance that technically a woman could have done. Because technically, a non-koyen is allowed to shecht an animal for a carbon, and so is a woman. And not only are they allowed to, you can even set it up that way in the first place. You'd have to have a very unusual kind of knife because they'd have to stand at a distance because they're not allowed into that area. But it's only from the moment they collect the blood of the offering and onwards that it's only Kohanim who could do those jobs. So Rashi says the penalties had a direct association with the perpetrator. She was a woman, so the penalties affect things that a woman technically could do. Whereas the Rambam's take is, The Rambam says there's no link between the penalties against the family of Bilga and the perpetrator, who was a woman. Because women, or for that matter, any non-Kohen, could not skin the animal. And for sure, no woman or no non-Kohen would ever have anything to do with the Kohanim's clothing, because a woman is not fit to serve those roles in the base Amigdash. So now, what is the reason Rashi and the Rambam note that particular difference? We'll explain that the foundation of their debate is as follows. Let us Rashi Rashi says, look, we understand the entire unit, the entire Regiment was all punished because of one family within their ranks. So Rashi says it's because of their families. Therefore, the only way that the penalties could affect everybody else would have to be things that theoretically could affect the original Russia. In this case, Miriam Basbilga. Miriam. If it's something that, in theory, even if it wasn't in practice, in theory she could have done. In theory she could have shechted. That's what we're going to penalize these people with. That's why as soon as you saw the penalties and the degrading of this group of people, you would know. Oh, that reminds me, it must be because of a woman. Because these are elements of their service that technically a woman could do. So that reminds us it's because of her, because of Miriam. Whereas the Rambam's view is, the penalties, according to the Rambam, affect areas of service that, ha- that could never have been related to a woman. And why are they having this debate? Because they're arguing about what is the impact of 
a shochen a neighbor oiler asha oiler shechina. Im ashechina spoiler shaychus pnimis v'shinoi. Does the relationship of two neighbors fundamentally change their reality? Which means that my reality becomes similar to my neighbor's reality, like the Bar Metzra. The fact that I'm next to his field means I become a little bit like him. He owns the field currently, and I have a right to own the field. Or is it just a totally superficial relationship? I happen to be the guy who lives next door to his field. If you buy that field, just be nice to me, because I happen to be the neighbor, and give me the rights of refusal. Rashi and the Rambam here fit the same attitude and approach that they have taken earlier as we've seen with Bar Metzra. Because the Shittas Rashi we've already seen Rashi is of the view that when it comes to Bar Metzra, he, the neighbor, doesn't have a, a, a legal right to the field. There's just a tenuous connection between him and the fact that the field's next door to him. So be nice to him and you, the purchaser, give him the rights to buy that field. But it doesn't fundamentally change him or his legal rights. Likewise here, Rashi says, the person doesn't change because of their association with Miriam. So only things that are like her are what they'd be penalized by. Elements that theoretically a woman could do. And if you think about it, Rashi fits with his more broad attitude to halacha and to Judaism, which is the Farish Pshutim Shultvarim, always explain things in the simplest way. The simplest way to explain the fact that the entire regiment is all penalized, the logic is they're punished because of her. So it must be a punishment that relates to her. Therefore, Rashi explains that whatever degrading or penalizing of this group of people happened, which was imposed on them because they're in the neighborhood of Miriam Basbilga, can only affect areas of their avoider like shechting, which can in some way have any relationship to the source of the punishment, this woman, Miriam Basbilga because that's how it came about. That's why there are these penalties. Whereas the Rambam has a deeper perspective on this, or sees it as a deeper relationship, let's put it that way. That the Rambam says, if you are a neighbor, that already means something about you has changed by virtue of who your neighbor is. In our context, why is it woe to the neighbor? It's not just because you're going to get caught in the fallout. Collateral damage. By being in the proximity of that person, it rubs off. It makes the neighbor a lesser person or a more wicked person. And that is something you can see clearly reflected as an overarching view of the Rambam already expressed early on in his book, Mishnah Torah, when he tells us about attitudes that people should adopt. He says, The nature of people is that it is natural for people to succumb to peer pressure, to be affected by those they surround themselves with. He goes into great detail and therefore says, choose to live in a healthy neighborhood. And if you can't find, they go live as a hermit. So therefore, from the Rambam's approach, it actually follows quite logically, that the 
pen- the penalties and the degrading of the Bilga group, don't have to be directly linked to where did the penalty originate, who was the catalyst. Because it's not about her. It's about the fact that her neighbors have also degraded and also haven't behaved as they should and therefore also deserve the penalties themselves. So with that in mind, we can now see why it is that Rashi doesn't have that pasuk as part of this conversation. Now we can understand the distinction. If we do actually follow the version of the Gemara that says, How do we know the impact of the tzaddik on his neighbors? Because the Pasuk says, That that would be the proof that there's a good influence of the tzaddik on his neighbors. Or if you take Rashi's view, which is it's actually a logical deduction. What's the difference? Bepashtus, at face value, horaya me'akosuv, when you use this Pasuk as proof, now let's read this Pasuk carefully now. Say to the Tzadik, he is good, because the fruit of their labor, they will eat. So the simple explanation, he the Pasuk started in the singular, imru Tzadik, singular, kitoiv, singular. Then was simul shen rabim, but it, Moved afterwards to the plural, kipri malelehem, plural, yoichelun, plural. Well, the pasuk indicates then that the neighbors eat together with the tzaddik; they share his experience. But if that is true, surely it should have said the fruit of his labor they will eat. Because isn't that the whole point? That the neighbors are benefiting from the fruit of the labor of the tzaddik. Isn't that the message? And everybody else benefits. That's exactly what the Pasuk wants us to know. Not only do the neighbors benefit from whatever the outcome of the tzaddik's efforts are, that they get something in merit of the tzaddik. But rather, there's something deeper that happens. The benefit of their product is what they eat. Because being in the proximity of the tzaddik has changed them. They're not only beneficiaries, they are changed people. To the extent that the tzaddik's product is now their product, they have changed. Of course, the Pasuk is directed at a tzaddik. Or it's praising the tzaddik. Because of course, the fact that they may then produce their own value, is thanks to the fact that they live by the tzaddik. And they obviously get credit for the fact that they have changed, but he gets the credit for the fact that he influenced them to change. That wouldn't fly according to Rashi. According to Rashi's view, Rashi's whole approach is that your neighbor doesn't change you. It's just that you have a relationship, kind of tenuous and superficial. So therefore, the Pasuk would not prove Rashi's point. He's not going to quote it. 
Therefore, Rashi has to prove how do we know that there's a benefit to being the neighbor of a tzaddik, mitzadasvoro. That he has to use logical deduction, that if something negative can happen, certainly something positive along the same lines can happen. If we find in the negative, that a superficial neighboring relationship with a bad person, is going to have a negative effect, then logically you can then extrapolate that it must be that if somebody is a good person, you will definitely benefit from being in their proximity. Now, this is not 100% clear yet. According to Rashi's view, why do we need the specific perspective that the positive is always greater than the negative? Let's assume that positive influence was equal to negative influence. So, that would be good enough to use the logical deduction to say, just like their negative influences, so their positive influences. Why do I need to know that the positive influence is greater? Rabbi Urboze, the explanation is, the fact that they actually penalized Bilga's group. Wasn't the most radical penalization you could get that would actually undermine them completely? Look at it. It's actually quite a superficial penalty. They don't kick them out and say you can never serve in the base Amigdash again because you belong to a family of heretics. They didn't even take away one element of the service from them. All they did was they said in certain of the elements of your service to be done in a way that draws attention to the fact that you're being penalized. And that fits very much with the overall theme of that which is negative to the Russia and rubs off on the neighbors. Anytime you talk about a Russia and the oi that's going to happen to the Russia, the negative, in the Jewish context, it will always be superficial. No negative will ever affect us in a meaningful, personal way. Like Chazal tell us in the Gemara Sanhedrin about one of the worst things, right? The, the capital punishment. That the purpose is that the person may be degraded or, dis- or or blemished in this world, and they won't be blemished in the next world. Which fits the theme, that any negative, spiritual negative, with regards to Jewish people, who is superficial, and secondary, which is superimposed over the person, which is why, naturally, whatever the consequence or penalty might be for it is also temporary and superficial. But when you're talking about the positive influence of a good neighbor, when a person, a Jewish person, hangs around with a tzaddik and therefore is influenced positively, that is something deep, personal, 
and permanent. Which modifies and shifts the person at the core of who they are, in the deepest part of who they are. So therefore it's logical. If we would say that the positive influence of a tzaddik would be equated to the negative influence of well, then we'd have a problem. That wouldn't be good enough for the good side. Because if we're comparing the two, we know that the Russia's influence is superficial. Whereas the proximity to a tzaddik, even if a person only has a relatively um, superficial connection, <coughs> and maybe not the deepest bond, Nevertheless, the tzaddik will influence the person in a meaningful way because and it'll be a fundamental shift that happens inside the person. So therefore, that's what Rashi had to say it. That the positive connections are far greater and more powerful than the negative. Rashi wanted us to know that the positive impact of a tzaddik on us is deep, meaningful, and lasting, and totally unlike the negative influence of a Russia. Now, those two realities, woe to the Russia and good to the tzaddik, are actually also symbolic of two complete areas of Jewish growth. And that speaks to the two primary areas that we've already discussed about how neighbor, neighbor relations work in person, in time, and in space. Bar metra in space, to understand that, as mentioned, these two expressions refer to overarching themes of how we serve Hashem. The expression oy, as we well know, you don't have to explain it, indicates pain or distress. As you see from human nature, when a person is in a deep distress, it naturally comes out. When a person is struggling with the pain and distress of Averos, then the oi represents tshuva, which does what? Breaks and nullifies the negative. With that in mind, these two perspectives or expressions represent the two major areas of service of Hashem. The concept of oi l'rasha, that's the oi of tshuva, represents the smashing of the negative. Otherwise known as ha'na'avoida sumira, staying away or removing oneself from the negative. In human experience, it's the bitterness and the heaviness that a person feels about inappropriate behavior. Whereas the goodness of the tzaddik, that's the avoid of, uh, of embracing the positive mitzvahs that we're supposed to do. In human experience, it's the joy of Judaism. When a Jew succeeds in having both areas, that will have an impact to be able to smash the negative. Have an influence on the shochen, on the neighbor. 
And when a person is enthusiastic and excited about the mitzvahs, will influence the neighbor. In other words, the people around us. Or more broadly, that actually fits into the two major themes, halachic themes that we've discussed. Bar Metra, as we've already discussed, the whole halacha of Bar Metra, the neighbor of the field is, We challenge the purchaser of the field to behave in a way that is against his nature. Because it's It's a person now relinquishing the rights to a field they paid for and bought legally. To avoid damage, or even less than that, inconvenience for somebody else. That's very much the approach of Sumira. Let me get rid of the negative that naturally would be my attitude in this case. Furthermore, it's interesting. Bar Metzre is not a part of Judaism that deals directly with a mitzvah. It's actually about a field, farming. A part of life that is not required by Torah, although it is regulated by Torah. When you're out there in the world that is not naturally the world of Kedusha, the primary focus is to avoid the pitfalls, to avoid the negative. Whereas the whole concept of adding time to the Shabbos and Yontav calendar, that's all about generating more positive in the world. Adding more Shabbos or Yontav to the world. Which of course represents adding more holiness to the world. Now that we've explained this concept of Oyle Rosh Oyle in a completely different way, we can understand you have a Mashakosov in Megale Amukos, what the Megale Amukos, the famous uh, uh, Kabbalist and sage from Lublin, explains. Who Rosh Teves Oyle Rosh Oyle Sorry, he was in Krakow, he was the student of uh, Rabbi Moshe of Lublin, I think. So he says that Elul actually stands for Oyle Rosh Oyle Now, what? Dracherek Osha. Hare Elul, who Chodesh Arachmin Vaslichas. Elul is all about compassion, mercy, forgiveness, atonement. How could this possibly be something that is associated with the theme of oi, oi the Russia, the misfortune, the, the penalization of a, of a Russia? And our Pirish explanation is incredible in light of what we've now explained. Oi is the groan of Tshuva. Oi Rasha is to break the negative through the process of Tshuva, which is what Elul is all about. And that has a powerful impact. It affects the neighbor as well. That means. The incredible influence, and this is amazing because it actually happens reversed in time. The incredible influence of the, 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 the despair, the pain of tshuva in Elul influences the neighbor, which is of the month that precedes it, the month of Av. How does that work? So there's a fascinating teaching in Zoyar Isa Bezoyar Shachadoshim Ashayochim and the Yaakov Avinu Heim that of the months that were given to the jurisdiction of Yaakov Avinu was Nisan Ira Vesivan. Shem Chadoshim Shal Kedusha, they're months of holiness, as you can see, Pesach, Sverso Omer, and Shavuos. And Esav should have had three months to correspond. 
but in reality, Esav only got rak train yarchin two months, tamazov. Veoloshtakech, and he didn't even get all of that. Veisabeit, and he lost part of the time. Because Elo, which theoretically could have belonged to Esav, is in fact given to Yaakov. And then, more specifically, of Chedesh of Gufa, he didn't even get the whole month of Av. Raktisha Yomim Heim delay only nine days out of Av are in the jurisdiction of Esav. Elohim nothing more. Only we move and we that helps us to understand that there is a difference between Av, even the better half of Av, and the month of Elo. That's why Oil as we already mentioned, that represents Elo. Oil means there's no room for the Rasha. The Rasha has lost out. He's an Oi. He's, he's been broken. Because in Elo, there's no space for Rasha. The Rasha, the negative, was never given any rights to Elo in the first place. Even though it was earmarked for the negative, it was never given to him. And then, then beyond that, there's this incredible impact on the neighbor. The impact of Elul to mitigate the period that precedes it. Which means that even in the month of Av that was allocated to Esav. From after Tishabov, he's lost Esav, he's gone, he's been overwhelmed by the positive of Elom. The Kovina Sanal tells us when we're told that if a person has a court case with a non Jewish person, if it is scheduled for Av, postpone it. That only means if it's in the first nine days. After that, don't even worry. So what have we got? We've got Euler Rasha breaking the bed. But the ultimate is not just to break the bed. The ultimate is that we should turn the bed into a, 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 a generator of new light that we never had before. That's exactly what happens with Av. By smashing the negativity of Av, we generate more positive in the world, which is Inyan Shel Menachem of the comfort within of. Once we have smashed the negative represented by this expression, woe to the Rosha, which goes through the nine days of our, of course, Chuba, that's the point. The point. Then of, which was the month of negativity, now becomes the month of comfort. Who leads us eventually to double comfort. As in this week's of Torah. And then from there we get to an even higher degree of comfort as we'll still see in the Pashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashashash
in the book of Tzadikim, the book of Brochus, and only Tov Hanirav Nigla.